And I saw that people react the same way in major life ambushes as people do in an enemy ambush. And even though it's not actual bullets or bombs going off in life ambushes, we feel the same. The level of anxiety, the level of overwhelmingness, the level of pain, the level of grief, the desire to just hunker down in that point and not move and just pray it'll go away. The desire to look back at the past and all we can think about is why can't I have that back instead of having to force ourselves to turn around and look at what is the new beginning? Where do I go from here? All that happens in real world ambushes. This is episode number 108 with Jason Redman. You're listening to American Snippets, the all-American podcast for those looking to dream bigger, live better, and make an impact. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of American Snippets. My name is Dave Brown. I'm here with my co-host and partner, Barbara Allen. And just a quick reminder, you know, our mission is to spread positivity, possibility, and patriotism all across the country. It's to promote the American dream and create a culture that celebrates all the freedom and opportunities that we have in this country. And it's all about helping Americans rediscover the greatness within themselves and within each other. So if this resonates with you, you believe in the work that we're doing here uh, and you've gotten any value out of some of the episodes and guests that we featured here on the show, all we ask is that you leave us a review on iTunes, share this with a friend uh, and share it on social media because you know each of our guests that we have every single week, they embody the, the American spirit. They prove that with hard work, focus, grit, determination, and never settling for easy that you can absolutely design any life you choose. So keep all of that in mind as you listen in to today's interview with Jason Redman. Jason had potential to be a strong leader, but his ego had other ideas. The promising Navy SEAL was admittedly slow in learning the nuances of leadership and soon found himself disgraced and ready to walk away from the career he loved. But with the mentorship of someone he respected, he gave it one more try and painfully rebuilt his career and his reputation. But Jason had barely settled back into his second shot at the SEALs when he suffered life-threatening injuries in combat and faced the biggest struggle of his life. But with his wife supporting him and his newfound mindset to overcome adversity, Jason not only made an extraordinary recovery, he went on to become an author, speaker, and advocate, inspiring and helping people all over the country. So without further ado, here is Barbara Allen with Jason Redman. You're listening to the American Snippets Podcast. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of American Snippets. I'm your co-host, Barb Allen. I'm here today with Jason Redman. We are always excited to sit down with these guests. Each, each week, our guests bring something new and exciting. Jason is somebody that I have followed for a long time and knew of and about and then happened to bump into him at an event. And I went ahead, took the opportunity and just ambushed him but he knows all about ambushes. He wrote a book about it. It's coming out soon. I was one for him, I guess. Uh, so Jason, <laughs> Jason Redman went ahead. He enlisted in the Navy at just 17 years old. Anybody who's a parent and has a teenager, picture your 17-year-old enlisting in the military at that time. I don't know if you can. I certainly can't. He did. He went on to become a Navy SEAL who deployed to Colombia and Peru and Afghanistan, served this country for over... 20 years in the military. In 2007, he was critically injured in combat in Afghanistan. His story of, of adversity and recovering from adversity and learning and growing from it and healing both before and after his injury in so many different ways is very, very compelling, really inspiring. He's written a book about it. He speaks about it. And today he is here to share that story with us and our community uh, in person, so to speak, close enough. Jason Redman, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us and share your story today. Barb, I'm honored to be on. Hello to everybody. And I definitely would not call uh, <laughs> you ambushing me. I, I would call that a, uh, an aggressive opportunity. An aggressive opportunity. Thank you. I know I, I'm always hesitant to do that. Jason, the backstory, he was at a, a concert at the a Virginia Beach Patriotic Festival and uh, he was just doing his thing and 
putting himself out there and helping others and speaking and they're representing. And I literally just cornered him in the corner of a tent and he took a very good nature that you don't want to corner a Navy SEAL, but that I went ahead and did it anyway. Yeah, it was good. It was good. <laughs> we're, we were on in the same circle. So that's definitely, that's, that's collaboration. So okay. no, I'm honored. Thank you. It went out well. Jason, we have so much to talk uh, about with you today. I have your book here, the first book you have out, The Trident. I loved it, loved it, loved it. This book, I know a lot of people I speak to say, oh my gosh, there's so many books on leaderships by Navy SEALs, like the market is almost flooded with them. This is what I hear from people all the time. This book, whether you are, you know, think that or not, I'm telling you this book is not a straight up leadership book on a how-to. This is a very personal, very raw, and actually... Dude, it is so real. I was, I was like uncomfortable reading it. So I'm like, no, don't say that. Like, don't do, you know? And, and I mean, <laughs> talk about open honesty, transparency. We're going to talk about this in a little bit because I think if you did nothing else with your life after service but share this story, this alone would would help people. And uh, the fact that you're so willing to be so open in it is awesome. So, can we talk a little bit? I know. We're obviously going to talk about your service in Afghanistan, but can you talk a little bit? A lot of people kind of forget that our military is all over the world, not just in Iraq and Afghanistan. First off, people forget we're in Iraq and Afghanistan, as it is. I know. Um, and then they forget that we're everywhere. So can you talk for a little bit about your service in Colombia and Peru and the, fill people in on, on why our military is going to those places and what you did over there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You know, Barb, I think the U.S. military is designed to try and obviously prevent threats that could impact uh, the country. And obviously, we try and look strategically 20, 30 years in advance. And oftentimes, it's relationship building with other countries. Oftentimes, it's learning capabilities of other countries and other militaries. Oftentimes, it's building um even long-term intelligence connections, intelligence relationships. And obviously, uh, if you go back you know, 30 years to Central and 40 years to Central and South America, at that time, the drug trade was exploding out of Colombia and Peru. And the drug epidemic in America was really, especially the cocaine and the crack epidemic was just exploding. So, um, Back in the late 80s, the, the United States declared war on the drug inflow into this country, and the majority of drugs were coming out of Central and South America, specifically Peru and Colombia. Um, so one of the things that I had the opportunity to do was work as part of that, doing counter drug, drug operations in Central and South America. So working with both Colombia and Peruvian uh, military and police units and training and, and different other aspects. So anywhere in the world at any given time, uh, special operations forces are deployed. I think I read recently that currently special operations forces are in about 168 different countries around the world right now. Uh, and it is both to uh, fix, find, fix, and finish current threats we are facing, which obviously uh, Al-Qaeda, Al-Shabaab, uh, ISIS, these are all immediate threats to our nation. Uh, and then looking further down the road, like I talked about uh, earlier, how do we build relationships? How do we build coalitions? How do we set ourselves up for success for future conflicts that we know are coming, or hopefully we can mitigate before we ever get there? That's super cool. And I know, um, like, I'll talk to veterans, or I worked with veterans for a few years as an advocate and you know, just knowing the community. And I can see people when they talk to someone, oh, you're a veteran? Oh, that was pre-9-11. Oh. And they kind of, like, they literally say, oh, like, oh, that doesn't count. Like, that <laughs> cuts off. So I love when I get to speak to somebody who has served either also or simply, or not simply, but, you know, but only before 9-11, because I think it is so important to understand that our military uh, is doing so many jobs all over the world you're still away from your family. Your family's going through that struggle on their own, starting families, raising kids and all that. And it, it matters, you know, service pre and post 9-11 matters, pre and, pre and post comments. So. Barb, can I make a comment to that? Yeah. Cause yeah, I see that all the time. And uh, what I, I see it in two different facets. I see it, what you've talked about, oh, pre 9-11. And I tell people, you know, I hate to tell you, but in the military, 
there will always always be an ebb and flow of war and peace. I mean, it just is what it is. I mean, obviously now it's unique. We're in the longest period of war we've ever been in as a nation. But prior to that, you don't get to pick and choose in the military. You don't get to sign up and say, hey, I'd like to be a part of the peacetime military. At any moment, none of us saw 9-11 coming. No. None of us. And uh, we literally went from, you know, if you, you know, from my perspective as the SEAL teams, we went from literally kind of a peacetime SEAL teams. And even though, yes, we were doing things around the world, but it wasn't direct combat to overnight within a two to three year period, the SEAL teams were 100% combat proven. And so was the rest of the military. We had, you know, citizen soldier National Guard units who were deploying again and again and again in this war. So, yeah, I mean, if someone is willing to raise their hand and say, I would like to serve this nation, they come into it, whether knowingly or not, right. that at any second you could go to war. So, yeah, I salute anyone that serves. And the other thing I was going to point out is I meet a lot of people who have served and I'll speak and they'll come up to me and they'll say, and I'll, and they'll say, yeah, I was in the military too. And I'm like, awesome, man, what did you do? And they'll they'll almost act like they're ashamed and they'll say, well, I was just uh, a logistics guy. And I'm like, dude, don't ever be ashamed of your military service. Like we would not have that. The military is one of the most efficient organizations, the U.S. military on the planet. Like we would not have a job if it did not contribute to the war fighters. So all these jobs play together to enable us to do our job. So I tell people, if you're listening to this and you served and you're like, well, I didn't serve post 9-11 or I didn't serve in a special operations or fighting unit, you absolutely made a difference. I could not have done any of the things I did without all our support personnel who both deployed with us, who provided us intelligence, who helped us move our gear, who helped us upkeep our gear, who helped us uh, upkeep our records and travel and all the things that needed to happen. So I hate seeing that. So please, 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 if you ever served, hold your head high. I don't care if it's peacetime. I don't care if it's wartime. I don't care if you are a frontline unit or if you're in a rear logistics unit, it made a difference. Yeah. And thank you for saying that. You were one of the first people I know, you know, probably other people think it, but you're one of the first people I heard, uh, you know, I actually give a shout out to National Guard as well in one of the interviews or the talks you did. And uh, my husband was National Guard. He was killed in Iraq. And so it's, I think for me, it's atypical to hear people recognize or acknowledge the National Guard. So just a personal thanks for that. So Tell me, can you think of one story, and I know we'll move on forward for this, but this is one of the things that just I thought was so interesting in this book too, back in Colombia, one of the things that people don't think about, I was like laughing out loud when you're talking about the different threats in the jungle and all that. These are things, I think people just, I think the more people hear these stories, the greater an appreciation we can all have for what, you know, what you all go through and do. So can you talk a little bit, I mean, how old were you when you were in Colombia? I got to Columbia and I was 20 years old. Right. Like yeah. I, my son just turned 20. So, I, you know, everybody always puts it into perspective, right? I'm picturing my kids. So talk about like when you're in Columbia, talk about some of the threats or the, some just some of the issues that you had to deal with on the ground yeah. there. Yeah. I mean, you're in a third world country. So, you know, it was definitely eye opening to me as a kid who grew up in, in the United States of America. I mean, I, I definitely... Um, my my family was we were probably lower middle income and then at times my dad lost his job and we were probably in the poverty level so i did not grow up in this opulence that's for sure so to go down to a third world country though and see the level of poverty um the lack of medical you know we take for granted to be able to go to an emergency room and get immediate help if something goes wrong and uh you know, I talk about in the book, the uh, story of where a young girl was brought to us. It frequently happened all around the world. Special operations forces are one of the things we do is we try and build relationships with the locals. And one of our unique capability is a lot of very high level medical care. Our medics have, they're really almost the equivalent of physician assistant, uh, uh, you know, a lower level doctor is their capabilities with their training. So oftentimes the locals will bring us individuals that have been injured or sick and we will help them. And they brought us a young girl who had severe burns on her lower body. 
Um, I, you know, to this day, I don't know. It looked like she had sat in either boiling water or boiling oil uh, in her lower pelvis area, upper legs in between her stomach. It looked like she had just been, I don't almost dunked. It was really bizarre. Uh, but severe burns, uh, second and third degree burns. Uh, we took her to the nearest uh, um, hospital in very rural southern Colombia, and uh, it reminded me something out of a horror film. Uh, you know, literally blinking lights. I remember we got her into, they had us take her back to the doctor's office, and the tools were rusted. Um, it, it was terrible. And I, to this day, I don't know if she survived, to be perfectly honest. We went back later. Her bandages were all soiled. They didn't have fresh bandages. Um, so we brought more bandages. And then, you know, that was the last time I ever saw that young girl. So these are some of the things you see. And yeah. then I think the other thing you're talking about is uh, obviously certain areas of the world are just dangerous. Yeah. Uh, as far as the wildlife, the jungle yeah. is definitely one of those places uh, it will eat you alive, literally. And uh, I'm fascinated with this show, Naked and Afraid. I've you had do. people go, <laughs> I w I've had people go, would you go on that show? And I'm like, only if they paid me a million dollars to make it. That's it. Yeah. Because uh, I have lived in the jungle for long periods of time. And uh, it, the jungle is a very, very harsh environment. And I could not imagine doing it naked. Um, you know, and and losing all that weight and having to deal with everything that's down there. I mean, there's trees, there's a tree in the jungles of Central America called black palm. It's a type of palm tree and it has these like anywhere from three to six inch needles that stick out of the tree and are on the branches. So they fall to the ground. So I just think about these people walking barefoot and I'm like, Oh, I just can't imagine like jamming one of those needles into your foot. Uh, and that's just one of the, yeah. you know, thousands of threats. And there are caterpillars that can kill you in the jungle. Yeah, that's just insane, insane. So uh, I just think that's extraordinary, the extremes that you all go to. And, you know, obviously today with a, a large part of this country, the kind of projecting their anger on the military and like kind of bashing the military too. I just love it when we get the opportunity to kind of share the things that, excuse me, that you do go through, right? Like you're not all about, you know, there's to the people that are like military just likes to kill, likes to go out there, you know, that one-sided version. You all are much more than combat soldiers. You know, you're humanitarians, you're peacekeepers. Um, and, you know, your combat service is essential to protecting innocent lives and in all of us. So Thank you for sharing all of that. When um, when you were injured, that was in Afghanistan. And can you talk just, you know, for a minute about about that day and then, you know, explain what your injuries were and then we'll go into, you know, the rest of it. Yeah, absolutely, Barb. Um, a, a quick correction. Uh, I did serve in Afghanistan, but I actually I was wounded in, you Iraq. Did in Iraq. Sorry. Yeah. So no, that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. I, I, I did get to enjoy vacations in both places. They were quite lovely. Uh, but uh, um, I was in Iraq in uh, 2007. And yeah. just to kind of lay the groundwork, uh, the Iraq war started in 2002. We made all this progress going into 2004. And then it literally devolved into a civil war uh, between the Sunni and the Shia. Um, and, and just as many people know, just, we got bogged down as an American military unit there and, you know, the war. So for several years, it just was, uh, kind of a stalemate and just really, we weren't making much forward progress until 2006 when Petraeus pushed for the surge of troops, uh, different approach to the war. And then another very significant thing happened in 2006, something called the Anbar Awakening. So the majority of Al-Qaeda was based out of Western Iraq, uh, specific, specifically in the Fallujah, uh, Ramadi, Havania area of Iraq. Um, and during that time, the local sheikhs finally stepped up and said, hey, we're going to help. We're going to, you know, Al-Qaeda is definitely worse than the Americans who are here. Uh, you guys are actually trying to help us. So for the first time in the war, they actually started providing us real 
information that we were able to action and go after, you know, Hey, down the street there, you know, Al Qaeda lives in that house. So it was, we were able to go execute those things. So I arrived in Iraq in the spring of 2007. So about six months into the Ambar awakening. Um, and, uh, it was, uh, a very volatile time in Iraq. I meet so many wounded warriors who were wounded in the 2006, 2007 timeframe in Iraq. And we were operating almost every single night, um, sometimes in the beginning of the deployment, twice a night, and going after high-level and mid-level Al-Qaeda and insurgent leaders. So September 12, 2007, uh, we had been tracking the entire deployment, the number one leader for the Al-Anbar province, and got word that he was going to be in a specific time and location, something we call a time-sensitive target. We launched on that target, and um, this leader, like many of your senior leaders, had a very uh, well-trained security detail. And when we went in on the target, the uh, security detail had set up an ambush. They had basically set up fighting positions outside the target building. And as we made entry, they opened up on me and my team. Um, th three of us, um, and I guess I got to step back. I'll just add one fact because people are going to go, well, that doesn't make sense. There are only six of you. We took down an initial target where he wasn't at. And we saw a bunch of activity on another building. Uh, we saw some individuals flee out of that building and run into a field so we took a nine-man team to go wrap these individuals up and question them. Uh, our nine-man team got separated in the dense vegetation. And by the time we stepped into this great ambush, uh, there were six of us, uh, myself and my teammates. Three of the six were initially wounded, including myself. And it just turned into a very brutal, up-close uh, firefight. Uh, there were, we estimate anywhere from you know, 13 to 15 guys were in this firefight, multiple machine guns. And we were only about 45 feet uh, from the machine guns that had us pinned down. Um, my medic was initially hit, almost took his leg off. He took a large caliber machine gun round right below the knee, severed both bones. Uh, one of our other guys ran forward to grab him. He was stitched up the right side, took three rounds. Uh, there was nothing but empty Iraqi desert for thousands of yards behind us. And the only point of cover we had was like a large tractor tire. Um, I was trying to lay down fire for our guys as they were moving back. And I was stitched across the body. Um, thankfully, my body armor saved that. But I took uh, two rounds in the left elbow, which I thought at the time took my arm off. I took rounds off my gun. I took rounds off my helmet. I had my uh, left night vision tube shot off. Um, continued to shoot for a minute or two, realized I was in a terrible location, uh, much better be on the sending end of gunfire than the receiving end. And I turned to try and get back to that tire where my guys were. And it was at that point they opened up on me again and I caught a round directly in front of the ear. Um, it traveled uh, through my face, exited the right side of my nose, took off most of my nose, blew out my right cheekbone, the bullet traveled right under my eye, blew out my orbital floor. It broke all the bones above my eye and shattered my jaw. I fell into this newfound hole in my face and knocked me out. So um, long story short, very, very intense firefight. Uh, my, my team, I was pinned down uh, out front at this point where I was wounded and unconscious for a little while before I came to. My teammates thought I was dead until I came to and in a rolling fire asked, uh, asked my team lead how long to the medevac. Um, he was a little stunned and in a, in a rolling fire ran forward and dragged me back and saved my life. He got a tourniquet on my really mangled arm and they, uh, they packed my face to try and stop the bleeding. Um, we, we could not gain an advantage over the enemy. Uh, so we ended up calling in a AC-130 gunship, an Air Force Special Operations, amazing platform that uh, basically is an aircraft in the sky that has precision targeting. And we ended up calling the closest fire mission in the entire Iraq war. We literally called fire directly in on our position. Uh, and they would not release it. The first two times they said, no, we will kill you. And finally, my team leader said, who was a very experienced something we call a JTAC, an individual who that's his job. He calls, he coordinates fire missions from aircraft. And he told him, he said, listen, 
He said, I got three wounded, one critically wounded. Uh, he, and he said, we're running out of ammo. Nobody's going to be left if you don't bring these in. So finally, they released those fire missions. Um, kudos to the AC-130 and kudos to my team lead team leader who saved my life and my teammates. But uh, we survived. We survived and we got out of there. Everybody made it. We took the enemy out. We did not get the enemy leader. He, he slipped away in the night. But about four months later, another SEAL team uh, got it. Nice. So that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot yeah. to have happen. And um, I mean, all the things obviously that went wrong, but all the things that went right to allow you to be where you are today, you and your teammates. I mean, just the the teamwork and the cohesion that, that was displayed there for everybody to kind of keep, how do you keep your senses in, in a moment like that? Right. I mean, that's where all the training comes in. I would imagine. I mean, that's a whole lot going on where I guess it would be easy to just panic and freak out and act irrationally. Do you think um, you, uh, that day, had you been in that situation 10 years prior, you know, some of the things you talk about in your book, your story, your, your evolution as a leader and as a, as a thinker and, and all that, do you think had that happened earlier in your life or in your career, would you have been able to respond? Um, you know, the same way? No, I don't think so. Um, you know, God works in interesting ways. I mean, if you, you know, believe in things like that, I do. Um, I had been through a whole nother path prior to this incident happening. And, uh, you know, I had failed pretty uh, on a pretty good level as a young leader. Uh, I had excelled in my career at an early age and there's many individuals who excel early. Um, if you're not careful, you can get a big head and ego and arrogance started to set in with me. And I had continued to sell excel, um, all the way up until I was commissioned, um, commissioned. And a unique thing happened while I was away at school, nine 11 happened while I was at school. So here we were, I was a pre nine 11 seal and had seen a little bit, obviously we talked about Columbia, but I had not been in any kind of sustained combat. And one of the unique things that happened within the SEAL teams, and I would imagine the military at large, is we quickly, a lot of us were operating off the last long period of sustained combat. Well, that was Vietnam. So we got into this new war, which was in the mountains and deserts of Iraq, very close, hard-fought urban uh, warfare. And we quickly realized that a lot of the tactics they were using in Vietnam did not work in Iraq and Afghanistan. So... In the couple of years I was at school, there was a total rewrite of tactics. And um, to make a long story short, I came back and was struggling. And instead of humbling myself, my ego got in the way. And I was like, hey, I was the guy who was like number one in everything I did. And I was not now. And instead of humbling myself and saying, hey, how do I do this? How do I do that? I was bullheaded and just started to make a lot of poor leadership decisions that continuously eroded my credibility as a leader that culminated with bad call on a mission in Afghanistan in 2005. And thankfully, uh, no one was killed, nobody was wounded, but it did damage my credibility. And, uh, and I actually had to go before a performance review board and my tactical abilities and my leadership abilities were called into question. And I even had a couple of people that I butted heads with who basically said, kick him out, take his trident, you know, the seal emblem and kick him out. So that was absolutely the lowest point I've ever encountered in my life. Um, I actually went back to my room after I left that performance review board and I put my pistol in my mouth and thought about blowing my head off. Um, thankfully, I did not um, because I was convinced that it was the end and I could never recover from that. But um, you know, the interesting thing about the end is oftentimes it creates new beginnings and it creates new opportunities. So I finally, for the first time in my life, humbled myself and started a new journey of leadership and coming to understand what it is to be a servant selfless leader and to really focus on how to um, help the guys and learn and recognize that a leader doesn't know everything. You know, you rely on the people around you. So um, that journey over those, you know, two and a half, three years is the hardest journey I've ever walked. So if I had not been through that journey prior to what happened in Iraq, 
uh, I would not have launched from it the way I did. Because a lot of people are really surprised. They're like, oh my gosh, that must have been the hardest thing we ever went through. But you just launched from it. You're so positive. You never look back. You know, you hung that sign on the door. And, um, and I said, yes. But I was unequivocally ready for that moment when it came because of the other things I'd been through. Yeah. And let's talk about that sign. I have this fly buzzing around me. I'm not very good at ignoring it. Sorry. You're under attack. <laughs> so I'm like spatting things. Okay. Um, so so uh, that sign, I mean, that's, that's, I'm one of the people that, that is when I first, you know, heard of you and your story is when I saw the story of that sign and it came back to me, you know, years later as I saw it again. Talk, talk about what that sign said. And that's not something like you weren't trying to inspire people. You were just like, sick of that. And I can so relate to that when you're going through something so terrible and so hard, and it takes all of your own strength to stay in the moment and to kind of stay on track and focus. And you have like negative or distracting things coming at you. Like you, you can't have that. You just, it, it can derail you if you let it right. So the energy it takes to, to stay in that, you just can't afford to have other people coming in and, and taking you away from that. So you weren't necessarily trying to like teach people things. It was just, but that's, I think what makes it even better is it was just honest and open and it was just, it came from the heart and it came from you. Can you tell everyone, you know, who may not have heard of it, what was in that sign? Otherwise I could pull it up and read it. Yeah, absolutely. No, yeah. you're, you're absolutely right. It was literally a stream of consciousness. I did not put any thought into it. I didn't sit there for like two hours and say, what am I going to write? Mm -hmm. uh, I wrote it right in the moment after somebody came into the room expressing a lot of pity for what had happened to me. And, uh, and in that moment, I wrote this sign out that said, attention to all who enter here. If you're coming in this room with sadness or sorrow, don't bother. The wounds that I received, I got in a job that I love, doing it for people that I love, defending the freedom of a country I deeply love. I will make full recovery. What is full, that is the absolute utmost physically. I have the ability to recover. And then I will push that about 20% further through sheer mental tenacity. This room you're about to enter is a room of fun, optimism, and intense rapid regrowth. If you are not prepared for that, go elsewhere. And uh, we signed it, the management, and I told my wife to put it on the door. And I said, nobody's allowed into my room until they read this. Um, a couple of days, or maybe a week after it was up, a teammate took his trident off and tacked it to the bottom of the door of the sign, in the sign. That's and uh, for him to take his trident off. Yeah, yep. yeah, absolutely. And a New York firefighter uh, who later became a good friend of mine and who has since passed away, took a picture of it and it went viral. Uh, it went all over the place and it, it earned me an invitation to meet President Bush at the White House with my family. Um, millions of people at this point have found that sign and been inspired by it that have been in accidents and have had cancer, wounded warriors. The original sign we framed president bush signed it and we framed it and put all the service emblems and the purple heart and the iraq and afghanistan service medal and it now hangs in the wounded ward at walter reed and uh, wounded warriors will rub it for luck as they go to surgery um secretary gates wrote about it in his book michelle obama wrote about it twice in her book so my message to everyone is, you know, you have a choice in these hard situations. You know, other people may want to feel sorry for you, but you can choose positivity. You can choose this relentless mindset. And the amazing thing about that is, yeah, you, you nailed it, Barb. I didn't do it for anybody else in that moment other than myself. But you never know the impact of having that mindset and what that impact can have on others around you. Yeah, it's so cool. It was one. Um, it's just it's just great. and I you know, when you've been through something and you're like, oh my God, yes, that's the mindset. That's the mindset that you need. Like everybody just needs to take a moment and kind of restock and just keep that other bullshit out. And that it can make the difference between recovering and getting on your feet or not. Um, you just mentioned your wife and throughout your story, throughout your book, um, as you say in here, you know, I know other people who have been injured and come back or not even been injured, just gone into the military and they're, it's just, it's just destroyed their marriage um, for whatever reasons. So there are so many reasons a life of service um, can, can destroy a marriage. Um, you know, I, I went through that a little bit um, before my husband was killed. I experienced the deployments and the separations and all that. And he wasn't even, you know, full-time military. 
and I experienced that strain raising the children on my own and all this, I'd be like, he'd come home, he'd get me pregnant and he'd leave, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and I, I'd hear he's off doing this and I'm home with the kids and I'm struggling. We can't pay the bills and he's gone. And, you know, it, it can make you a little resentful. Right. Um, so that alone can be enough to to test a marriage. But your marriage is one of the ones that uh, that not only survived, but seems to have thrived through it. You speak so highly of your wife uh, and her support and her strength in that. Do you want to um, just give us a little bit on the family side and just let, you know, take people in, in that, that aspect of it. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, my wife, Erica, I call her my long haired admiral. Um, she is just, uh, amazing. And I think, you know, oftentimes people a lot ask me, you know, about relationships and they ask me about marriages and what, what I always tell them is choose wisely, you know, do a very good betting job. Um, really, Unfortunately, in the military, oftentimes people come together and get married um, and they haven't had an opportunity to spend a lot of time together, especially spend a lot of time together in really adverse situations, because often what happens in the adverse situation, military members gone. So you don't get to see, you know, unfortunately, the, the nuances of people's personalities don't come out other than in the hard times. I mean, that's, you know, we all can project positivity in the good times, but you know, we need to be able to lean on each other. So I was fortunate enough that Erica and I, um, there were certain things that played into, I met Erica when I was a training instructor as a enlisted guy. And, um, so we got, it was a long distance relationship, but that's when I got selected for a commission. So I started school right after we got married. So we had three years to really build a strong relationship and really get to know each other and um and and be friends you know be really good friends and uh i think that made such a difference as we went forward you know after i got commissioned and suddenly started going off the war and she really you know stepped into this military warrior environment i mean i you know in the book i call her my spartan wife because she really was i mean she was the rock that held our family together through combat deployments and the loss of friends and, uh, you know, severe injury to me and just setting the example for our kids and, and taking care of me after I came home. And when they discharged me from the hospital, I was in a wheelchair. I was trached at a stomach tube. I'm wired shut. I mean, Erica was grinding my meds up in a, you know, mortar and pestle and putting it in my stomach tube so that I could, I mean, that's, that's a lot to ask someone to do in a relationship. And, um, you know, she, she probably deserves some sainthood somewhere, but, uh, so yeah, I'm fortunate and you are absolutely right. I watched so many relationships that deteriorate within the military, even without wounds. And then with the, the wounds of war, um, I'm always saddened to see we'll work with wounded warriors when we were running our organization. And, um, you know, they, they would be struggling, but making it. And then I'd find out later that they had separated. Yeah. It's a, it's just a side that often that people, and you know, law enforcement, first responder, any, I think high intensity service uh, field like that is prone to prone to those issues in their marriage. And it's just, just, I think it's just another aspect that can be appreciated by those who don't serve just something else that goes into your service. So one thing that made me laugh is when when you wrote about uh, Phoenix, oh, I think it was Phoenix, your son, who's like, dad, I mean, you got shot, but it would have been cool if you'd also got blown up and survived, right? Like, it's not, <laughs> like, not enough <laughs> for the little kids. And that moment, like, you had gone from wondering if your son would even come to know you again or be back, and here he is joking about it. How have um, your children kind of shine you, kind of giving you that extra energy or helps you get through? Because you had, I mean... 40 something surgery. It was just a double year process. That usually happens in my house. <laughs> yeah. I, I tried to tell him not to come in. I can hey, see stop you. it. Lay down. Lay down. Lay down. Okay, you're good. You're good. Hey, hey, you're good. Arma. I, I get it. I get it. Stop. Stop. Hang on one second. That's all right. Karma, the service dog, has injected himself into the into the interview. Yeah. Okay, you're good. Lay down. You're good. Lay down. 
<laughs> All right. So uh, the question was about kids. Do we, um... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Reboot. So my kids, um, you know, when I was going through, they were tiny. They were six, five, three and one when my husband was killed. And it was a whole extenuating circumstances and terrible. And as much as it was difficult to parent them while I was in so much pain, they would say things or do things sometimes that just sort of put everything into perspective, help me top, stop taking things so seriously and just be able to laugh for a second, right? So it looks like your kids had, had the same impact on you. And uh, yeah, I was just asking you about that. And if you had something to say about, you know, a moment or two with them. Yeah, you know, kids are amazing, uh, but kids feed off their parents. So mm -hmm. if, if you, and this is something I talk a lot about in, in my new book, Overcome, when we have massive trauma in our lives, um, I call that point of trauma the X. In the military, we use the same thing to strive attacks or ambushes. And everyone is overwhelmed. I mean, obviously, we're overwhelmed from the trauma we've gone through. Barbie, absolutely. I mean, that was a major life ambush that you went through. But what we don't realize or sometimes we fail to think about is all the people around us get pulled onto the X with us. And in the case of a traumatic event with a family, um, your kids are on the X with you. And they are feeding off you, you know, and, and that's why I tell people it's the same if you are, if you run a company and something happens with your company, your employees are going to feed off you. It's the same if you're in a relationship, your spouse is going to feed off you. So that's why it's critical, you know, to, to, to as hard as it is to try and project that positivity and to look at how do we drive forward. Because your kids will feed off that. Eric and I both made that decision from the beginning that we were not going to feel sorry for ourselves. We were going to drive forward because I felt like I owed it to my kids. Um, and they, in return, fed off that. And yeah, there were some absolutely hysterical moments and there were some amazing moments. I mean, kids, if you act, if you can, you can be hurting or you can be going through pain, or you can have injury, whether it's cancer, whether it's the unexpected loss of, of a spouse. Um, it's okay to grieve because we're all grieving. They're grieving too. But, you know, if they see you're doing your best to move forward, they feed off that. And, and they, it's, they just have an unconditional love. My kids taught me what unconditional love is. And uh, it would just be so funny because they're a little bit ignorant of the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, kids are so great because they'll say the things that as adults, we filter those things out. But well, I mean, some, perfect... of us do and some of us don't. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> some, some the filter. I don't know. I love people that just have no filter. I mean, uh, yeah. personally, I like people that say it like it is. I mean, we, we're so layered in this world and it drives me insane sometimes. But um I think, you know, one of the funnier ones, a perfect example, my youngest daughter, who I had no relationship before I deployed, um, she was she was two and turned three uh, right after I got injured. And um, and literally, I'd been gone her entire life. Um, yeah. And my older the other kids, my daughter was five. So she was in kindergarten. My son was eight. So they would go to school during the day. But my youngest was home. And we really, um, she was my snuggle buddy. So she would crawl in bed with me and we would watch cartoons or whatever while I was recovering. So, uh, so yeah, she became my little buddy and probably fast forward a year after my injuries, we needed a new washer and dryer and we went to the exchange and we're looking at washer and dryers. And so my youngest is like four um, and maybe it was a little later, she might've been four and a half, but she, she said, she goes, daddy, um, how did she word it? She said, daddy, the Navy gives us money. Right. And I said, yes, the Navy pays me. And she's like, but you got injured. And I said, yeah, I did. But you know, that was part of my job. So they still take care of me, even though I got injured. And she thought about this for a few minutes and she goes, I wish you'd get injured again. So we'd make more money. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, in her mind, she mm -hmm. had put two and two together. So uh, just this funny moment. It is, it's, it is hysterical how they think like that. And just, 
like all the things that you think are going to be the problem with them aren't really the problem, you know, because they're not even interpreting it the same way. They're just hilarious. They say the funniest things at yeah. the best times, at the best times. Um, talk for a second about the difference between how you were perceived and how you were able to relate to people when you kind of dropped the anger and just let like the inner humor wear out. You know, when you started making those shirts instead of like snapping at people in the airports, I think, A, it was hysterical. Um, like those shirts, me, my widow, I think you, I think you could hang with the, some military widows. I think there's like the same kind of overlapping humor there. <laughs> I, and I've, I've, I've hung we, out with many. Yeah, we, so. yeah. I think you, yeah, you probably do fine in that circle. Um, but you know, because the humor, right? The humor, if you're able to laugh at something, if you can take something, the anger is there, right? But if you can find a way to kind of like turn it into a, a less uh, damaging outlet, and if you're able to laugh at something, if you're able to find something funny, even when it's not funny, um, what was like, what happened the first time? Well, tell people, you know, what the shirt was first off, the first time you wore one of those shirts and why you created it. Yeah, I, I, you know, facial injuries are really tough because as humans, we all, we look at people's faces. I mean, we communicate with our faces. And so if you have a major facial injury, I mean, even now I have facial scars. I mean, you know, you can tell something happened to me. Um, and people still, you know, kids, especially kids kind of look, kids usually do double takes when they see me. Uh, and that's fine. I'm good with it. But back then I looked really rough. I mean, I was definitely a lot of damage. I had um, really no nose in the beginning. My eye was very messed up. Uh, my face was messed up. And it attracted a lot of attention everywhere I went. And unfortunately, in the beginning, I was angry about that attention. I was a little bitter. Um, I was struggling with it, to be perfectly honest. Um, to be disfigured is not a cool thing. And um, so anyways, all that attention made me angry at times and people would be rude and stare. And, and the other thing that was happening is they wrongly assumed I had been in some other kind of accident, whether it was an auto accident, a motorcycle accident or something else. Um, you know, here we are, it was 2007, 2008, and it was flabbergasting to me that people were not like, Hey, you know, I don't know what happened to you. Were you injured in the war that it didn't even enter their mind. And that really started to frustrate so I created, I had this idea one night that I should make a line of clothing and we're going to call it wounded wear. And, uh, and we should, you know, we should have funny things to draw attention to what happened. So the very first shirt I made said, I got shot by a machine gun. It would have killed you. Um, and it was just this real in your face. Um, but to answer the question of, Hey, this is why I look the way I do. And, you know, I think I made another one that said, uh, you know, wounded for your freedom. Just say thank you. Um, <laughs> so, you know, they were it's just so shirts. obnoxious and it's so funny. I love yeah, <laughs> I well, you know, to, I just, I mean, it's, it's perfect. It's perfect for the moment. Go ahead. I, I made some for my kids because my daughter uh, wanted to take me to show and tell one day. She was like, Dad, I want to take you to show and tell because um, my friend's dads haven't been shot. And I was like, okay. So we made one wounded wear. Is your dad cool enough for show and tell? So, you know, I mean, it was just trying to have fun and just That's great. capitalize. So, uh, so yeah, we ran wounded wear for uh, almost uh, 10 years. It was a great organization. We might bring it back. There's a lot of demand for us to bring it back. So we're, we're kind of looking at what the future looks like with that. Yeah, that'd be great. And, um, yeah. So in all the work you do, have you come across, uh, and then we'll get to the last couple of questions here in a second. Um, but it, I know there can be like some resentment from people in the community and outside of the community and work you do. And I think the more you put yourself out there, the more you're prone to wind up in situations where shit starts going wrong or hitting the fan or people are spouting things. I don't know anybody who is any position who has accomplished one thing or has accomplished another who doesn't have somebody coming up and saying, oh, you shouldn't talk to that person. They did X, Y, and Z. You shouldn't talk to that person. They do X, Y, Z. How do they deal with that when that happens? Like how, what is your approach? And like, how does it impact you when the work you're trying to do is sort of under, under attack is a bad phrase. I don't know how to put it, but you know, like it's sort of maligned by somebody. Um, does it take your eye off the ball? Does it change how you operate things? Does it make you not want to 
continue helping people or using um help? Maybe sometimes, but I, I just try and be as transparent as possible. I mean, last year I made a decision. I said, I'm going to do everything in my power to not be negative uh, about others out there if they're being negative about yeah. me. Um, I, I would be fact-based. I mean, if there was something I would say, no, that's not true. These are facts. But other than that, I just focused on me. I mean, you know, one of the things when I made those mistakes as a leader, I, I started to follow three rules of leadership that I now teach. Lead yourself, which enables you to lead others, and then you have to lead always. You can't pick and choose. And still trying to follow that to this day. Uh, gossip, negative comments, bad-mouthing somebody because they maybe did something that, you know years ago that maybe you didn't agree with really doesn't accomplish anything other than, I don't know, perhaps to make you feel a little better or feel like you have power over that individual. Um, you know, one of the greatest things that I've done and continue to do is I'm transparent as all get out. So I just kind of take away people's ammo because, you know, I know there's a lot of people in the SEAL teams who remember when I messed up as a young leader. And I know they're like, that guy messed up. And then people and me are like, yep, I wrote a book about it. Maybe you should read it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, that's really just, how it, it is. Yeah. Yeah. It just takes it, takes it out of it takes the power away from all the negativity and just kind of deflates it. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and that's the thing. That's one of the yeah. biggest things I speak on is no one is perfect. Everyone out there has made mistakes yet. People are terrified of their mistakes. They're terrified of their failures. They're terrified to fail and they're terrified ever to talk about their failures, but everybody's failed. Everyone, everyone has failed at some level. And that's why I love talking about, you know, I get brought in to speak on leadership, but I tell people I'm not a leadership expert. I'm a failure expert. And if you can learn to embrace that, people relate to it because yes. they're like, oh my God, I can't believe he's talking about that. But I felt that too. I've been through that. Yeah, it's great. It's great. You have a new book coming out, um, Overcome, and it talks about the ambushes in life. It is so such an important topic to be able to talk about, um, you know, how to prepare yourself for whatever is coming at you next in life. If you haven't prepared, talk a little bit about that book, maybe one of the key points from it and, you know, when people are going to be able to get it. Yeah, absolutely. So it's available for pre-sale now. So you can go, uh, I think most of the major booksellers are pre-selling it, or you can go to my website, jasonredman.com. And I have a link that takes you to all the major booksellers. But uh, it's really an amazing book. And it's a book that really was 11 years in the making because um, it, it really started, well, if anything, probably 30 years in the making, because really it is, a, it is a journey through my life but it is in no way a memoir. This is a personal, this is a self-help book and it is focused on individuals and the fact that everyone in life, one of the things that I realized, and it was funny at the beginning, you talked about that firefight. You talked about, oh my God, that must've been so overwhelming, the level of anxiety. How did you, how did you stay focused with your in pain, your hurt? People I've, I've, I've worked with so many wounded warriors and a lot of people that have been through massive amounts of trauma, gold star family members and things like that. And I saw that people react the same way in major life ambushes as people do in an enemy ambush. And even though it's not actual bullets or bombs going off in life ambushes, we feel the same. The level of anxiety, the level of overwhelmingness, the level of pain, the level of grief, the desire to just hunker down in that point and not move and just pray it'll go away. The desire to look back at the past and all we can think about is why can't I have that back instead of having to force ourselves to turn around and look at what is the new beginning? Where do I go from here? All that happens in real world ambushes. And the more I watched this happen, the more I started to recognize these correlations. And I started to look at what enabled us to survive that ambush? Well, point of any attack, point of any life ambush, we call it the X. So, you know, my, my new saying is get off the X. I tell everybody, you got to get off the X. Any kind of life ambush, you have to start looking at how we move forward. This book is built around all that. Everybody in life is going to go through ambushes, uh, and they occur in three different levels. There are micro ambushes, which are the ambushes in the mind, and they happen all the time. But so many people allow them to pin them to the X. It's the little ambush that says, 
you're not good enough. You're not fast enough. You're the wrong race, sex, creed, color. You don't have enough money. You don't come from the right place. You know, Barb, you'll never make it. You lost your husband. You're never going to be able to go for it again. Whatever that little voice tells you, people listen to it and they get stuck on the X from it. Um, so principles are the same. Second one is, is minor ambushes. These are big schedule disruptions that we allow to impact our mindset and we allow it to disrupt our lives, but, but we allow it to. And the reality is if you fast forward a couple of years, you won't even remember it. So a good example is your car breaks down and you only have one car. So now you're forced to rely on friends or public transportation or whatever it is. It's a big schedule disruption. But it really doesn't create a catastrophic event on your life. You know, years later, you won't even remember it. And then the biggest one are the major life ambushes. And these are the things that will leave a physical, mental, or emotional scar on you that you'll carry for the rest of your life. Um, at the lower level, they're like relationship breakups, personal failure, professional failure, bankruptcies, lawsuits. Uh, as we get higher, it's, uh, it's illness or injury to ourselves or illness or injury to people we love. Um, it is sexual trauma. It is the loss of a loved one. And one of the biggest impacts I've seen is the loss of a child. These are major life ambushes. And people have about five of them on the average throughout their lifetime. And so many people, we've seen them, it destroys them. Uh, I've watched, you know, obviously, if you are injured in combat or a major life accident, that's a major life ambush. Uh, Barb, you, you have, you've been through a major life ambush. I realized, and I talk about it in the book, I've been through three in my life. The first one was my leadership failure and having to overcome that. The second one was my personal injuries. And the third one was a lawsuit. I got, uh, I got sued uh, back in 2015 around a business project that we got involved in by a couple of friends that devolved into a really terrible, frivolous lawsuit that landed me on the front page accused of fraud and collusion, um, which I did not do. Uh, but unfortunately in the eye of public opinion, you know, who, you know, first strike wins mm -hmm. in that arena and they did, I mean, good on them. You know, their strike was good. Um, the charges were dismissed. We had all the, the evidence to prove that that did not happen, but it didn't lessen the blow. So I only say these things to give you examples of what people go through. So everybody out there listening right now has either been through a life ambush you're going through a life ambush, I got bad news, you are going to encounter another. So this book is all about how you, A, if you're in a life ambush, lead yourself out of it. Uh, the second part of the book is how we lead ourselves. It's all about how you prepare and build balance in your life to be better prepared for future life ambushes that are coming because make no mistake, they're coming. Uh, the third part of the book is how we lead others out. So we had talked about earlier, our kids are on the X with us, our employees are on the X with us, our, our spouses or uh, partners are on the X with us. And then the last one is how do we lead always? How do we make sure we're constantly preparing um, so that we are ready for the ambushes when they come so that we're better balanced and we can manage them better? Because so many people, they are not prepared in any way whatsoever when they come and they are just crushed. So I want people to be as ready as I was in my military ambush by creating balance in their lives and understanding how they can prepare and train themselves and how they can build a relentless overcome mindset. Those are the three components to be ready for life yeah. ambushes. So that's what the book is about. Uh, I had some amazing contributors. Jocko Willink contributed, uh, Bill McRaven. Um, uh, General Stan McChrystal talks about what happened with him that ended his career, the life ambush he went through. Um, uh, other SEAL, uh, notable SEALs and wounded warriors that I worked with who went through these incredible life ambushes and managed to launch from them. So I'm really excited about this book. I think it's going to help a lot of people. Awesome. Yeah, that's something I wish I had read years ago. I was one of those completely unprepared and but if you're not unprepared, man, it's just going to take you down, down. The best thing you can do is just prepare for that, prepare for that shit because it is, it is coming. I don't care if you're 14, if you're 15, like I would suggest you, you know, read that book because at some point, this, the earlier you get out in front of it, the better I think, I think you'd be. So I'm excited for that book to come out too. I will certainly pick up a copy uh, you awesome. know, and, and you. share it with our community. You have a new website coming out. 
soon. Actually, That's right. probably by the time we air this, it'll be live. What is that website? It's uh, getoffx.com. So G-E-T-O-F-F-X.com. And it's my new coaching and consulting uh, website. So I have launched a new coaching, online coaching program. I'm doing personal coaching also, uh, a little more expensive, you know, but one of the great options for people is a monthly group coaching program called the Overcome Army. And it is, it is built all around the principles I talk about in the book, how you build that mindset, how you work on those three areas of your life, the overcome mindset, preparation and training, and then balance. Um, and then uh, I have a new online course, 72 hours to peak performance. So if you are in a life ambush and maybe you're struggling to get your life back on track, uh, it's a great course to reset. And I talk about something called the Pentagon of Peak Performance, five key areas that you need to apply time to within your life if you're going to effectively lead yourself. And also, if you have put some time and effort into these five key areas, you will be ready for the life ambushes when they come. So uh, that course comes online and uh, we're putting up other courses. And obviously, we have overcome merchandise uh, in the store and you can get my books and all that. Yeah. And if you want a little taste of them, you can catch them on Instagram at 6 a.m. Monday mornings for his Monday morning musters. What is your Instagram page? That's right. Jason Redman, WW. So uh, I'm uh, pretty active on Instagram. Yeah. I try to get back to everybody within 24 to 36 hours. Uh, if you message me, it's me. I'm the one that, uh, you, you know, I mean, sometimes my team will put posts up for me. I'll, I'll get them to put posts up, but I'm answering the messages on my Instagram feed. Excellent. All right. So last question here, rounding this up. We talk a lot in American Snippets. One of the most compelling reasons that we started this is when all the negativity, you know, hit this country and people seemed like they were giving up on, on America, on the American dream. For me personally, I felt like everything my family had been through was about to be just wasted or forgotten. People weren't taking advantage of it. So I knew I met so many people who were making the most of things and utilizing the opportunities in this country and overcoming great things. So I, that's what led me to you to be able to speak to you. But all part of it is the American dream. We really, really believe that it is still alive and well. We are living our own version of it. And I think we also kind of owe it to ourselves and all the people like you and others who, who make sure that we have the right to live it right so but we love to ask people what does that mean to them like what what does the american mean mean to uh, american dream mean to you personally it, it, for, to me it means freedom and opportunity i mean that's what this country was built on but you know one of the things i always like to remind people of because there seems to be this very pervading mindset there's two pervading mindsets that are happening in america right now and i would love to see us come back around one is this entitled mentality, um, this idea that I deserve to be happy, I deserve to have success. And, you know, the founding fathers, and if you look at the Constitution, it says life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It doesn't guarantee happiness. Uh, so it preserves the, um, the, the sanctity of life, like we need to protect our people and we need to preserve life. So, you know, there's lots of things that try and do that. And then liberty, your freedom. And with that comes opportunity. So you have the freedom to go out and do something. You also have the freedom to sit on your butt and do nothing. And if you decide to do that, good on you. You live in a free country. Nobody is going to make you get off your butt and do something. But at the same time, you can't whine and complain if you haven't found success by doing that. That's where opportunity comes in play. Get out there. This is one of the great, there's a reason why the American dream is still alive and well, and why people from all over the world want to come to our nation. This country was built on immigrants. It was people who saw this land as the land of opportunity, and it unequivocally was. But there's been this dynamic shift because in the first 150 years of our nation, people came here and they assimilated into America, and they were excited to be a part of this country. They were proud to call themselves American. They were still proud of where they came from. They were a Polish-American, they were an Irish-American, they were an Italian-American, you know, and what's I, what I'm afraid is right now we're starting to get to this point where our personal identities are taking precedence over our American identity. So the, the LGBT community, that's more important than being an American. Um, African-American, white American, uh, Spanish American, it doesn't matter. That's more important. You know, your, your, your race, creed, 
religion is more important than your national identity. And we need to flip that back around so that all of us are Americans. We are united by this flag. We are united by the freedom and opportunity that made this country into what it is. We are united by sacrifice. And, you know, whether you're white, black, brown, red, I don't care if you're a little green Martian that flew here and you're like, I want to be an American. If you go through the immigration process, I'm going to be like, brother, come here. You know, yeah. give me a hug. Let's, uh, you know, let's figure out how to find your opportunity to be great in this country because that's what exists. That is the American dream. And it's it's sad for me right now to see so much division because we've had this flip flop that's occurred where individualism is being prized and pushed above this, uh, you know, us working together and being a group. Yeah, we feel the exact same way. That's why we're doing what we're doing. That's why we have our our own projects coming up to emphasize the same. And it's why we find people like you to help share that story and share that message. Thank you so much, Jason, for taking the time. Hey, thank you. And genuinely, thank you for your service, you know, for what you do. I 100% appreciate it and value it. And your your wife too, uh, for the example, she sets, you know, standing beside you. And I know how hard that struggle can be, you know, raising those kids and all that. So props to her. Uh, yeah. Thanks for taking the time to sit down and share your story with us today. Yeah, Barb, thank you for having me on. To, to everybody that's out there, if you are struggling, get off the X. You can overcome. It is never too late. I don't care how long it's been. I don't care how much you think that it's too late. It never is too late to get up off that X and move forward. And there are amazing people out there that can help you do that. Excellent. Thank you so much. Hey everyone, Dave Brown here again. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of American Snippets. I'd like to personally thank Jason Redman for being here as well and sharing his incredible story. If you want to learn more about Jason, head on over to americansnippets.com forward slash 108. Check out the full full article that we did on Jason. Watch the uh, video interview. And we'll also throw in some links there uh, to his social media profiles and a link where you can get his uh, new book and learn more about Jason Redman. I appreciate you being here today. If you got any value out out of today's episode, you enjoyed it, please share this on social media, share it with a friend and leave us a five star review on iTunes. Now go out there and show the world how exceptional you truly are. We'll see you next week.